This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, have now announced that their private foundation will put an additional $150 million toward coronavirus relief efforts around the world, adding to its previous commitment of $100 million toward international efforts in developing therapeutics and diagnostics and vaccines. And they stress that fighting COVID-19 must be a global effort. Now, this is the same billionaire philanthropist who said... In 2015, in a TED Talk titled The Next Outbreak, We're Not Ready, the following quote, he said, if anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war, not missiles, but microbes. We have invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence, but we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. That was five years ago. And also the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation partnered with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the World Economic Forum to host Event 201 back in October. This was the high-level pandemic exercise in New York that examined potential scenarios for responding to a severe pandemic. Now, when you couple this with the fact that coronavirus guru Dr. Anthony Fauci is discussing the possibility of immunity cards for Americans, it's no wonder that a lot of people are starting to wonder if there just might be a bigger agenda at work in this entire situation, that of the technocrats. So we're going to talk about all of it today with Patrick Wood. Pat is editor-in-chief of Technocracy News and Trends. He is an economist and a leading and critical expert on sustainable development and historic technocracy and the author of Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order. It is so great to have you with us again, Pat. How are you? Hi, Janet. Doing just fine, thank you. Glad you're covering this topic, by the way. Oh, man, no, I have to thank you for covering this topic because I don't know anybody who understands this better than you do. This was interesting because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. chairs this children's health defense, and he actually said in his piece, Gates' obsession with vaccines seems to be fueled by a conviction to save the world with technology. What do you make of that quote? Well, you know, whatever the answer, whatever the problem is, in the world today, take any problem. The answer, the solution is always offered as science. You know, science is going to bail this out of, you know, science is going to fix this and that. And Gates and the crowd he runs with are absolutely obsessed with this. In fact, you can see shades of the philosophy of scientism behind this, which is a very old philosophy. It's evil, by the way, in my opinion. But uh, it, it postulates that science, um, the people that practice science, engineers and scientists and so on, are almost like gods that can predict the future hmm. and th- that are better than mortal men. And this is an ego trip of just inconceivable magnitude. And yet these people think that somehow they're going to save the world. On the other hand, Bill Gates has also said 
that he wants to see the population of the world reduced by a significant number. And how those two objectives fit together, anybody can go figure that out. It sounds to me like it's a complete contradiction. Well, it does. There are a lot of things that I think many of us look at and scratch our heads a little bit. It's weird, I guess, to some people who say, well, five years ago, you were saying we're not ready for a pandemic. And then you were having this event in October. And it would be a conspiracy theory to say they they knew it, they planned it, they put it out there, all that kind of stuff. Although there are some people who are going that far. But I, I mean, five years ago, if you thought we weren't prepared, why weren't you pouring millions into some effort to stop it? I mean, it seems strange. I think what everybody is hearing right now about how he wants to have a vaccine and they're talking about these immunization cards for Americans, it really scares people a lot. And it should scare them. This, you know, this whole thing uh, started in London, of all places. One might figure that if you know the whole story. But there was a professor there by the name of Dr. Neil Ferguson. He is a professor at the Imperial College in London. He was the one that first came out with a computer model that said Britons were going to lose 500,000 people and America was going to lose 1.2 million. This set off a panic throughout the leadership of the world immediately. But what people don't know is that this particular university is also well known for its alarmist reports and computer models that have been generated for climate change, for global warming over hmm. the last several years. Hmm. They are a sustainable development university through and through, and they're fully aligned with the United Nations on sustainable development. And so when this particular professor, Dr. Neil Ferguson, came out with a study, it, it was just a computer model, just like the global warming computer models. There was no real substance to it, and he's basically stabbing in the dark. Right. And he scared the pants off of global leadership. From that time forward uh, till now, the media has taken that and other big organizations like the World Health Organization, fanned that ember into a full-blown worldwide panic over COVID-19. And it's not to say that the virus isn't real. It certainly is real. Nobody's questioning that. But as soon as it was identified as being a problem in China, this particular narrow group of people that are promoting sustainable development, climate alarmism, they got a hold of the narrative, Janet, and blew it into a global panic. And this is where we are today. It's way beyond just the virus itself at this point. And as you said, the agenda belongs to them, not to health officials. Right, right. So what do you see when you're looking at all of these pieces of information that everybody else is getting? You you can see this very clearly, I'm sure, more than anybody I know from a technocrat's perspective because you understand this issue so well. What are you seeing that perhaps people like I or other people listening are not seeing when we're reading the news about this? What's the bigger picture from your perspective? Well, first off, people need to learn. Don't trust technocrats to give you policy for running a government or running a society. They're not qualified any way, shape, or form. And you know, this this guy from Imperial College, um, he's an epidemiologist. He's not a doctor. He has no medical degree whatsoever. Hmm. An epidemiologist is a statistician. His, his PhD is in mathematics. Wow. 
It's got nothing to do with health per se, but he likes, he's kind of like a, a storm chaser. You know, he likes to uh, model, pande- you know, pandemics in particular. That's what he's been doing for several years. But he has no medical training. But people automatically assume that an epidemiologist must be some kind of somebody like Anthony Fauci or something, you yeah, know? Yeah. No, it's not. The guy has no criteria whatsoever to say how society should be run. And the policies he dreamed up, were the very policies that the world has adopted with social distancing, with, um, you know, with isolation and all, you know, all the things that we're experiencing, shutdown of the economy is what we're experiencing in, in America right now. He suggested these policies to global leaders and they bought it. They said, well, a guy identified it, he must know what he's talking about. Mm. They bought the policies. So people need to learn technocrats are not representative of the people. They're not interested in, in the people per se. They have their own agenda, and it's not yours and mine. No, but if you're talking about shutting down the economy, that's right in line with the technocrats' objective of getting rid of capitalism. There it is, a great opportunity. It is, and that is the end game here, is to kill off capitalism and free enterprise once and for all so that sustainable development can be brought in, which is the green economy, if you will, the Green New Deal. We People pretty much know what that is now because of AOC and Senator Markey, um, you know, talking about rebuilding everything from the ground up with, with green jobs and, you know, sustainable principles and stuff. It's crazy. It will never work. But now that the economic system globally has been frozen in time, the stimulus money that's coming out now is not going to things like rebuilding our existing economy. It's going toward things that will rebuild in a green economy model. That is sustainable development, and that is technocracy. Yeah, it is. Well, there are a lot of things that a lot of us don't understand, but we're going to continue the conversation with Pat Wood. We're going to take a quick break on Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. 3,100 Americans lost their lives yesterday and the day before, not to the coronavirus, but to abortion on demand in our country. It's a tragedy of incomparable proportions, with over 800,000 weekly, globally, losing their lives. In the face of this, Preborn is offering free, compassionate, Christ-centered care and ultrasounds to girls in unplanned pregnancies. Would you prayerfully consider sponsoring an ultrasound for a girl today? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound and $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Will you help a mom in need choose life? Just call now. 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. 
This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. From now through April, Janet Mefford Today is partnering with Bible League to send Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. And I'm really glad that Pat Wood is here. Pat is Editor-in-Chief of Technocracy News and Trends, and he has been paying close attention to everything that has been going on among the technocrats, Bill Gates and the like, people globally who are looking at the coronavirus pandemic and having all sorts of thoughts that the average American probably wouldn't have. And you were talking about that, Pat, a little bit before we went to the break, that even with these relief efforts, we knew this. When Nancy Pelosi came forward with her bill, the $2.2 trillion relief bill. There were all kinds of Green New Deal things in there. And thankfully, the president, President Trump, called that out and said, no, 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 no. We're not doing a Green New Deal in this. But, you know, what do we need to know about how these technocrats would love to be able to exploit this crisis and move the ball forward on the sustainable development goals that they have? Well, here's something in the news cycle right now. Universal basic income. This is a thing that got shot down with Andrew Yang, remember, was a presidential candidate who was talking about universal basic income. Yes. This has been a technocrat initiative ever since the 1930s. This is nothing new. And now this is in the news cycle. In fact, the top story being read right now on technocracy news and trends has this this headline, Technocrat Pope calls for universal basic income. Even the Pope now is calling for universal basic income. And around the world, people are listening. Leaders are listening. In Spain, they just implemented, or they're in process of implementing right now, universal basic income. Americans just got a check for $1,200 a person in just direct deposit to their bank account. And now... There's talk in Congress about uh, giving $2,000 a month until the pandemic is over. Mm. This is universal basic income, Janet. And it's all of a sudden an idea that had no currency last year. All of a sudden is, oh, this is what we need. And you see the suggestion has been made. World leaders took up on it. And here we are. Right. And it, it makes sense that they would want that. But what is it that, you know, understandably, President Trump is is trying to do what he can to give relief to small business owners in particular. He wants to prop up the economy. He doesn't want people to starve or not be able to support their families. But, you know, I have a couple of concerns. That's one huge concern, what you just mentioned. But the other concern that I have is we don't have the money to be doing this. So why wouldn't they be in favor of giving away trillions of dollars? That will be all the more reason that they could move the ball forward and see the government collapse in on itself financially. You can't sustain this kind of spending on money we don't have. No, and this is exactly what's going to happen in the end. I I can't, I don't have any more crystal, crystal ball than you do to know what's going to happen a year from now exactly, but I think we can get a pretty good idea that uh, the Piper's going to get the payment sooner or later, and uh, uh, the the world is going to realize at large, well, there goes the old monetary system. It's just up in flames. Yeah. This is exactly what sustainable development people want. 
they could usher in a digital currency. In fact, a digital currency was something that was in uh, Nancy Pelosi's original bill. It got thrown out, but it was in there for the Federal Reserve to create a digital currency to give money to everybody across America. Well, this is a, a technocrat initiative as well. Right. So, you know, you can see maybe a year or two down the road where all the currencies of the world are just repudiated by all the people in the world. And some central bank, maybe ours, maybe some other one, maybe the European Central Bank, will come out with the idea for a, a global uh, digital currency that will be swapped into everybody's uh, local currencies um, at some rate, and you just have to take it or, or else. And this would also be the final move that would drive all cash out of society as well on a global basis. This is what they want. This is the technocrat initiative as well. Right. But wouldn't you have to see the crisis of the pandemic reach huge levels in order to be able to justify that. For example, if we see things opening up around May 1st in certain key parts of the country, as perhaps could happen, wouldn't that mitigate what they're trying to do, that if Trump opens things up and businesses return and and there begins to be a little bit of a recovery, that that would get in the way of what they're trying to do? Or how do you see the timeline perhaps fitting into this broader agenda? Well, as of today, and that's all I can speak of is today because we really don't know exactly what the future looks like here. But as of today, the global, the global economic system and the global financial system, they're slightly different conceptually. They have both received mortal wounds. And when I say a mortal wound, these are the kind of wounds that just do not heal as fast as you got them. Kind of imagine being shot with a bullet. It's very fast. But you don't recover from being shot with a bullet for some time. Yeah. And that's what our that's what the economic system is facing right now. The the financial system right now is in total shambles throughout the world. The economic system has dropped off a cliff. Uh and the statistics that you read, the economic statistics are just absolutely Stunning. We've never seen drops in economic output of this magnitude ever in our history, including the Great Depression. Goodness. And we're all sitting here wondering, when do we stand up? When do we demand to be let free? And, you know, there's this back and forth because people don't want to spread a virus. Nobody wants to spread a virus and kill people. But I think there is a beginning of an awakening in the churches, for example, some of these churches that have faced draconian action from some of these local politicians. They're beginning to say, hey, wait a minute, we still do have a Bill of Rights. How do you see that whole issue perhaps playing out where Americans begin to wake up and see something bad is happening? Happening here, we need to stand up and be Americans, even if it's you know having to be balanced with a health crisis. It, you're right; it is huge. You know, when people are saturated with fear, as we have right now all around the world, different people have different levels of fear burning in their in their soul. When people are saturated with fear, they lose all rationality, and they will take any ex- basically any ex- external suggestion of behavior, of activity, whatever, that somebody else they consider in leadership or some type of leadership position would suggest. This is a well-known propaganda thing. It was studied back, you know, after World War II extensively, and this is, this is nothing new. We've known this for a very long time. Any psychiatrist, any psychologist will confirm this exact point. But it's playing out on a mass scale across the whole planet. People are absolutely 
petrified, or I should say those who are petrified, are taking whatever suggestion of a solution that anybody wants to throw at them. Yeah. And we have to, you know, you have to question, well, who's throwing the solutions here? If, if I were in Trump's shoes, which thank God I'm not, but if I were, the first thing I think I would do would be to fire Anthony Fauci and his sidekick, Dr. Burke. Yeah. These people are, have conned America into shutting down its entire economic system. Nobody in the history of our country has ever been able to do that. They walked in and did it with a wave of the hand. You don't all want to die, do you? Hmm. <laughs> but, hmm. well, yeah. what? They're not qualified to run a country. We do not elect them to run a country. Exactly. Or our economic system. Yeah. They're nothing. They're just hired you know, scientists that should advise government in a proper role. They should be advising government. But they should not be making policy for government. No. See, that's why we have elected po- elected politicians in our country to have representative government. Right. Somebody should be thinking about the big picture here. And, you know, is it was it really a panic from the beginning? My guess is if, if people in Washington had understood that it was Imperial College in London that started this whole thing in the first place, they would have raised immediate an immediate alarm saying, whoa, wait a minute, aren't these the same people that said we're all going to die because the seas are going to rise last year? (laughs) (laughs) That said all the polar bears were dead and and that, you know, uh, we're going to cook because the temperature goes up a half a degree. This is the same crowd, Janet. These people are con con men and women, plenty of women there too. Yep. But they have conned the world for the last 20 years with this global warming garbage to try and create a panic like, just think of Greta Thunberg, for instance, with the, the youth rebellion around the world. Yes. This little girl is absolutely just, well, I say she's off her rocker. She's not. She's just a kid. But she's panicked the whole young generation into thinking they're going to die before they're 20. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of them have believed it. The poor kids. It's just ruined kids' lives. And this is all based on the fear of climate. See, fear is always, it, that's their that's the only thing they got to sell. It's fear. Because with fear, policies get executed that would never otherwise get executed. Yes, right. Don't, l- don't let a serious crisis go to waste. Emmanuel's favorite, favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so moving in the direction of, you know, ushering in the 2030 agenda, this would be a really, really good way to try to do that for these people as well. Oh my gosh! This is this is right here. My my friend Leo Homan, a great uh, journalist from yes. the East Coast. He's great. I love <laughs> just Leo. <laughs> a, just just wrote an article today. Pandemic pan. And well, I put my own headline on it so it doesn't conflict in social media, you know, in the search engines and stuff. But uh, pandemic panic to usher in the UN's 2030 agenda ten years early, and that that's I fully agree with him. We've talked a lot about this. He understands technocracy, by the way, very well. And uh, he's hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what's happening here. They they didn't like the slowness of things, the way things are moving forward with the 2030 agenda and everything else that goes on. And all of the people at the UN have been complaining about how ineffective the climate, uh, the whole climate argument has been to move forward towards sustainable development. They've just universally whining about it. Now they've adopt, they've got the perfect racehorse, if you will, 
to win the Preakness and everything else all in one swoop. They're gonna, they're, they got a triple crown going on right now with this pandemic. And yes, all of the policies that we're waiting for another 10 years to be implemented, now all of a sudden, boom, 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 they're falling like dominoes. And people like Bill Gates and other technocrats, prominent technocrats are coming out of the woodwork now to claim their little you know, place in the sun. That's right. Well, go to technocracy.news. Check out all the good material from Pat Wood. Pat, thank you so much for what you do. Great to have you here. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today and Now. Here's your host, Janet Mefford. Psalm 3418 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Knowing the Lord is near to you is such a comfort when anyone you love has died. And one of the most intense forms of grief is the kind that's experienced by moms who have lost a child. That was the experience of my next guest, Kim Erickson. She is an attorney and has a writing and teaching ministry at her website, KimAerickson.com. She's also written a book that she hopes will serve as a survival guide for other mothers who have lost a child. The book is called called Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I know this is an incredibly difficult subject to tackle, and yet there are a lot of moms who have gone through similar experiences to yours. You lost your little son, Austin, when he was just three years old. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you, but can you tell us how Austin got sick and what happened from there, what that experience was like? Sure. Um, Well, it it was very normal. That's the uh, kind of the, the tragedy of it, I guess, is, you know, he started running a fever, and we took him to the doctor. He was diagnosed with strep throat. He got his antibiotics, and, um, you know, he just didn't seem to get better. And so, um, you know, he got his antibiotics on Tuesday, and I took him back to the doctor Wednesday. We took him back to the doctor Thursday. Um, and then on Friday morning, I got that call, you know, that no mother wants to get. Uh, that the ambulance is at my house and um, working on Austin. And we did lose him that day. And so he died from complications with strep throat, <laughs> if you can believe that. Wow. And, um, you know, amid this cr- crisis with the coronavirus, I don't, you know, I don't want to add to anybody's um, panic or fear. But, you know, when your child dies from something as simple as, as strep throat, um, you know, it, it can... It can rock uh, your world in a lot of different ways as well as just the loss of losing a child. Yeah, of course. Did they, didn't they also say that Austin might have had mono as well? Was that and it, Did that end up being the case? So that ended up being the case after the autopsy. Um, we, nobody, nobody knew it. Um, yeah. And since, you know, since he passed away in our home... Um, you know, there has to be an autopsy and an investigation. And so we got to do all of, all of those steps as well. Um, were difficult, but yes, he did have mono as well. And so it was, uh, it was really unusual. And, you know, it's, 
um, it's just one step and one step in front of the other and um, trying to get through it as best you can. Right. Now you have a little boy, another little boy as well. What was life like for you? Obviously in the aftermath of the death of your child, you're going to be, you know, I can't even imagine how horrible it must be. You must be just kind of dazed and confused and everything else. But what was life like for you and your husband and your other son in the immediate aftermath of losing Austin? Yeah, Ethan was just 15 months old. So he was just a baby, um, you know, and just starting to come into his personality. And and so there really wasn't a lot of time to to curl up in the fetal position and stay on my, you know, in my bed. He's just a baby. So, you know, my husband and I really um, pulled together and said, you know what, the the worst thing that could happen for for Ethan is now that he's lost his older brother is to lose his his family unit, right? Right. So divorce is not an option. And causing him more grief and being, being crazy parents that's not an option either. We want him to have a normal, beautiful, amazing childhood. And so as hard as it is, we need to act normal. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just tried our best to do what we normally would have done, you know, had we not lost Austin and, and set our own, you know, fears and our own anxieties to the side as best we could. Right. I, I thought it was so interesting when you were telling in the book how you had just started going to church not too long mm-hmm. before Austin died, and then you gave your life to Christ just a few days later, didn't you, after he died? That that was an incredible thing that happened right at the right period of time, it would seem. Yes. Isn't that, I mean, God is in every detail, right? He's yeah. in every detail. And he had really prompted my husband and I had not been, you know, we both went to church as kids. Our families both all go to church. Uh, we kind of were the only ones who weren't uh, involved in church in any way. And, you know, there we sat with this three-year-old and a 15-month-old, and we thought, gosh, you know, we do want them to believe in God. We do want them to have faith. So we decided that I would shop for churches on Sunday mornings, and Devin would watch the boys. And if we found one we thought we could like, we would go. And so, believe it or not, that Sunday, um, I came home and said, you know, I think I might have found a church I can tolerate. (laughs) I'll never forget the word I use now, because (laughs) i got to eat my words. And and Devin said, well, all right, next Sunday, we'll go as a family. We'll all go together, and we'll put the boys in Sunday school, and we'll try it. And I said, okay. Well, then Monday, Austin got sick. And um, he died on that Friday. And then on Sunday, my whole, of course, all of our families are there. And on Sunday, I said, we are going to church. You said we were going to go to church as a family. We are going to church. And you could have knocked our families over with a feather <laughs> because wow. we were not the churchgoers. But, but we went that Sunday, and you're right. I gave my life to the Lord that Sunday. And really that stems from like a moment I had in the car, you know, as Austin passed through heaven I just had a moment where I knew that I knew that I knew heaven was real Mm. and it was awesome. And so I, I needed to know what, what else was real. And so that's how it began. I, I gave my life to the Lord that Sunday and, um, Austin's first nanny gave, gave me my first Bible Mm. (laughs) and, uh, I just ran with it and jumped in with both feet and 
That's that's such a comfort. That's so good. I I was really struck by something that you said in the book that God understands what it's like to lose a child. That that's mm. such a weighty statement because boy is that ever the case. How did that work its way into the way you were thinking and grieving in the wake of the loss of Austin? The fact that the Lord could identify with what you were going through, not just understand but identify. Yeah. It when you lose a child, you feel so lonely, even though you know other people have lost children. Like, you know, you still feel so, so lonely. And so you, the grieving feels like you're isolated and like you're all alone. And I remember I was reading my Bible one day, and I believe it was in the Gospel of Luke, but it's that scene where Jesus is in the garden just before he's arrested. Um, and it's just the perfect time that we're heading into Easter. Um, to talk about this, it was, and he, he's in the garden, and he begins to pray, and he says, Father, remove this cup from me. You know, in other words, like, I don't want to do this. Right. You know, I, I don't remove this cup from me if you can, and but if you can't, then your will be done, not mine. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Right there in that moment, God knew he had to put his only son on the cross that he was going to be tortured and beaten and rejected and and killed on that day. And it was in that moment when I was reading those scriptures that I went, wow, God knows what this feels like to lose your child. And and he lost his child in, in the most awful way. And how it just knocked me over. It, it, it really was powerful for me to go, he really understands it. Yeah. One other scripture was um, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he sees all the people mourning and crying and weeping, and it says that Jesus wept. And so that was another moment where I was like, wow, he really understands our mourning and our weeping. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's, it means so much more than if you just read it and you have nothing going on in your life that makes it profound at that moment in the way that you experienced it. It's I, I, Those kinds of moments are so special when you're reading the Word of God and all of a sudden it was just exactly what you needed to hear at that time. Yes, that, I was amazed that that happened because I did not know, you know that the Bible had that power. I did not know that the Holy Spirit could allow that to happen for you. You know, so for most of my life, I did not know this. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, that was amazing to me. It and is amazing. I still think it's amazing. Oh <laughs> yeah. my. Well, there's a lot more to talk about. We're going to pause for a very quick break. Kim Erickson is my guest. Her book is called Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. We'll be coming back on Janet Meffer today after this. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible 
medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact on the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. Sheltering in orders across the country are spiking the number of unplanned pregnancies, and the Preborn call center is inundated with girls calling us. Contrary to government mandates to stop elective surgeries, Planned Parenthood remains open, consuming scarce medical supplies, all the while aborting babies. Our clinics are offering free, Christ-centered alternatives to these women in this time of crisis. But our clinics need your help now more than ever. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and a direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in this time of need? Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I think this is a book that will mean a lot to a lot of people. It is the case that many parents have lost children, whether it was a miscarriage or a child lost in early youth or a child who's lost in adulthood. There's just no kind of grief like it. Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss is the book. Kim Erickson, the author and my guest. And Kim, you were talking a little bit about some of the verses in scripture that have really helped you understand that God identifies with your sorrow. God knew what it was like to lose his only child as well. And Jesus wept with, even though he knew he would be raising Lazarus from the dead, he still wept. He still felt pain. I, I'm curious because one of the ways that you express how you were grieving, at least initially over the loss of your little boy, Austin, was you said you didn't cry very much. And I thought that was interesting. You, you had some trouble thinking straight, you said as well. But what were those initial symptoms that you had, if we want to call them that, right in the aftermath of the grief? Because as you said before, and I identified with this as a mom too. You had to keep functioning because you had to keep functioning for your other son, but you weren't crying. How do you reflect back on that when what was really driving that? Why you weren't outwardly grieving the way other women might have? Yeah, I really have this need, like part of my personality is I really have this need to appear that I have it together. And so that's, that's just my, one of my personality uh, traits. Like I like to appear that I can handle things. So that's one. But the other one that's probably more accurate is to say that it felt like if I let some of this out, like it would just overwhelm me and I would never return. Like right. it felt like I would just drown in it. If I started letting this out, I may never stop crying. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, right. I don't know if I can stop it. And, um, and so that's really how it, that's really why I, I bottled it up because I knew it was too big um, to handle on my own, you know, and, and without yes. God, I don't know how I could have done it. Yeah. What finally helped you? I know that you went to a counselor at one point, but did you get to a moment where you really could cry and really could grieve that way? Yes. And that she, this counselor did tell me to make an appointment for my grief. Um, 
because I also operated my day based on my calendar. And so I, I had to have like an appointment to grieve. Hmm. And we started out short, you know, just 10 or 15 minutes. And, and when just let out whatever comes, let it out. And then that's all you have to do. You know, so it became, um, it felt more manageable. And it, it wasn't like I said, okay, I'm going to cry at 10 o'clock, you know? Yeah. I just allowed myself to be open to my emotions, whatever they may be. And little by little, it, it just, it became, I, I realized that I really could let it out and it would not overwhelm me. Yeah. And I really clung to that scripture you started the show with, which is Psalm thirty-four, eighteen, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that's so true. And yeah. he so does. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. I'm curious, did your husband grieve differently than you? Were you pretty much on the same track or were there some differences in how you dealt with it that, that made your life a little, I don't know, added a little bit of stress to the marriage or did you have any of those sorts of moments at all? Because I know that some parents have talked about that, that one parent grieves one way and the other one grieves another way and it can become an issue. Did, the, did that ever happen to you at all? You know, that definitely can happen, and there were, certainly there were moments. Um, God really blessed Devin and I with similarities in, in our triggers. For example, the photographs. Like, photographs trigger both of us, and so I didn't. we don't have a lot of photographs of Austin up because it's triggers for both of us. And um, the way that we uh, recognize his birthday or his passing day, you know, we're really on the same page on some of those things, and I think... Those are big places where, you know, couples could have different needs. Um, and what I would say to that is you have to have, you have, to have your own needs um, and your grieving and your loss. You have, to, you have to be able to do that and process that. But you also have to be your spouse, um, your spouse's helpmate. And so just like all things in marriage, it's going to take some compromise going to take talking about it, which is probably the whole, one of the hardest steps for, for Devin and I is talking about it because mm-hmm. it's when I'm having a good day, he doesn't want to bring me down. And if he's having a good day, I don't want to bring him down. And then you end up not ever talking about it. Right. <laughs> so it can be tough, but communicating right. is, is key. Well, sure. What about dealing with other people? I, I think that's tough maybe for others who care about you and love you, who haven't walked through it thinking, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say anything inappropriate and I don't want to bring up Austin's name if that will bring them more pain. How do you see it as the mom who lost your son in advising people how to deal with a mom who's in your position? Yeah, I've, I've kind of landed on three. My, th- these are three of my favorites is um, one, just show up. And, and you really don't even have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. And just showing up and, you know, saying, hey, let's let's go grab lunch or showing up and doing her laundry, getting your groceries, you know, just, just showing up next to her says everything you need to say. And then number two is definitely no comparing, okay? So I know that losing your grandmother was hard you know, last year, but it's not the same as losing a child. And grieving parents all over the world will tell you how many times we have heard people compare the loss of a child to the loss of a pet. And let me tell you, I love my pet. Yes. But please don't do that. No. (laughs) So that's a definite no-no. No. No. Uh, So comparing, you know, any of your losses, even as grieving parents one to another, we try not to do that because everybody's loss is different. 
And then number three would be um, no complaining. You know, like coming over or visiting or during lunch, you're complaining about, you know, your kids fighting, (laughs) bickering. Mm -hmm. I'm so sick of their bickering. In my head, I'm going, wow, I would really cut off my right arm to hear my boys bicker. You know, (laughs) like I would love to hear that. So um, comparisons and complaining are two no-no's. I think that's really good wisdom. It really is. I, I yeah, that those kinds of things that you're talking about, people who compare, that that drives me crazy because it, w- what's really thoughtful is to put the grieving person front and center and let them be front and center. I mean, that's just polite and and that's what really shows love. I, I'm curious too. You, this chapter is tough, but you talk about what to do with stuff. And that's that really is a hard situation because you want to remember everything you can, I'm sure, about Austin. But at the same time, what do you part with? How did you handle that? That is the tug of war. You know, when, when you the tug of war of grief, like holding on to memories versus, you know, moving into hope that life is going to go on and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay again someday. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the getting rid of the stuff is another huge um, communication issue. You know, you've got to um, communicate with your spouse and anyone else um, who's in your family. And what we did is we made these different bins, you know, like those big um, storage bins from Walmart or whatever. Yeah. The bin. And things that any of us wanted to keep of Austin's, we could put in that one. We labeled that one Austin's Keep. And then there was one um, for to give to Ethan either someday or later, you know, and so we put things into that bin that we wanted to keep for Ethan um, coming up behind him, and then there was a box for giveaway. I guess this was, it was his, but it doesn't really have a sentimental value, and it's not really anything special we want to hold on to for Ethan or ourselves, and so as you, you know, encounter things, we could put them in these three bins in, in this room, and so just slowly... We kind of would come across things and go, you know what? I could really give this away. Some other little boy could use this, and that would be just fine. So it would go in the bin, you know? <laughs> wow. Wow. And, and yeah, there's so many things that you have to go through, so many steps you have to take. Kim, I'm curious, as it's been, you know, a number of years now since you lost Austin, how are you doing now? Oh, that's, thank you for that. That's sweet. It. You know, it was just my birthday yesterday. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. And thank you. And, you know, there are days that are just hard. And, you know, even my birthday is just one of those hard days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's off and on is what I would say how we're doing. You know, most of the time, um, my day is, is filled with joy and gladness and gratefulness and worshiping God and praising Him. And so most of the time is good. And you will get there, you know, if those people listening early and they're lost right now, it seems like it's going to swallow you whole and it feels like that, but you will just one day at a time, one step at a time, eventually your steps get lighter Mm -hmm. as you go. And so, but you also still have really heavy days and and that's okay too. You know, there are some days when this still knocks me down. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, a really, really helpful book, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss by Kim Erickson. Kim, God bless you. I'll be praying for you and your family. I know that that's a very, very difficult loss, but thank you for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and your hope in the Lord. 
Thank you for joining thank us. You so much. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much, Kim. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.